Months and months and months for the NBA Finals to get here. Well, it was really just a week, but it came, and Game 1 goes to the Golden State Warriors in rather emphatic fashion, Nick, as it's 113-91, to 31 assists to four turnovers. That's pretty good. Impressive performance last night by Golden State. More impressive or more disappointing by the Cavaliers? How would you classify last night's game? Uh, You you know, you have to go impressive first just because of the talent level that's there for the Warriors. I mean, the way they move the ball, you mentioned the turnovers, the assist-turnover ratio, which is just incredible. I mean, it's unbelievable. You know, people people criticize Durant for going there and saying that he jumped ship and went to this really good team. Yeah, he did. You know why he wanted to go there? Because of that. Have you seen the way they move the ball? Have you seen the way they play basketball? I mean, nobody else has played basketball the way this team does. If you're a scorer, if you're a guy that wants to win – that's the system you want to be in. It's I, look, the Warriors couldn't, or the the Cavs couldn't play any defense, right? I mean, dude, I'm sure you were watching it too, screaming at the Cavs at some point, <laughs> just waiting for to see someone to step in and take a charge on Durant because they're running down the court and there's no transition defense from the Cavs whatsoever. I mean, Durant's just got a wide open lane. He's running down the court like a gazelle. No one's getting in his lane. He's like, hmm, I guess I'll just go ahead and dunk on nobody again because no one's even by the rim. I mean, it's more on the Warriors than anything else. But the Cavs looked. So unprepared. They looked so overwhelmed. Even in the first quarter. I mean, look, that was a close first quarter, right? I mean, I remember I tweeted out. I was like, all right, this is a good start to this thing. I'm excited. Van Gundy was funny with his Rihanna thing. And it's like, all right, this is looking like it's going to be pretty good. But I I think I told you last week, I've been saying to other people, too, that you're going to have a couple of blowouts in this series. And the Cavs could very easily have a blowout win in Cleveland in, like, game three. I mean, there's a very real possibility of that. It's just the way that the, the playoffs have gone I mean, look, I, I wanted it to be close, but at this point, if, if the Warriors are going to dominate, then just sweep the Cavs, and then we can watch a team go 16-0. and 0. It's going to be, you know, like, as a fan that wants to see as many games as possible, good games, I don't want to see that. But there is the history factor with that, too. I mean, it would be kind of interesting to see that, at least. But, uh, look, I'm, I'm disappointed it was that close, or that, that much of a blowout. It was close early, and I just... Honestly, I was starting to fall asleep during the game, man. It was getting it was getting rough by the I, end. I fell asleep in the fourth quarter. I'm not a, yeah. I'm not afraid to say it. Um, yeah, you shouldn't be. I mean, <laughs> honestly, why why would you be? It was it was not worth staying up for by the end of the fourth quarter. When you looked at the Cavaliers' defense against the Celtics, and we talked about this on the podcast, um, their ball rotation on uh, against the Celtics in Game Four is the one that I pick out when the Celtics had that ten point lead going into the half, and that's when Kyrie went absolute bonkers when when LeBron got his fourth foul and you know the 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 surprising thing about the Cavaliers Nick was that they defied logic by being able to to turn the switch on right they played like crap down the stretch I think they were about a 500 team in the second half of the season and then come the playoffs they were ready to go they're a veteran team they are a prolific offense but a knock on them all year long not just the second half of the season all year long is that they're not a quality defensive team Kyrie Irving is, in my opinion, the best ISO player in the NBA, but he's not a good defender. Kevin Love is not a great defender. Yeah. LeBron yeah. can be. LeBron can be a very good defender. Amon Shumpert can be a good defender. But 
when you're playing a prolific offense like the Golden State Warriors, and if you want to argue now, and we could kind of do that another time, if they're the best offense in the history of the NBA, but they have the ability to stretch the floor by having Steph Curry being able to shoot from Mars and hit a three-pointer and Kevin Durant to do the same thing, it just stretches you out. And this Cavaliers team, I really just I question whether or not they can figure it out defensively. And I do wonder, Nick, despite the fact that the Cavaliers are such a strong offensive team, probably the second-best offense in the NBA, should they slow this game down? Should they try to turn it to a half-court game? Because the Warriors, when they get in transition, it's automatic. They don't turn the ball over, and you know they're scoring if they, if they get out and run. Well, we saw what Cleveland did in game one. It wasn't working. Right. I mean, you obviously can't defend Golden State in transition. So, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have a problem with them trying to slow things down. I mean, we've seen them have success against the Warriors in the past where they play a little bit more of a physical game. They slow things down some. And, look, you can only do that so much because the Warriors can still make you play their game. That's why they're so good. But, like, you bring up the Cavs' defense. and now I, I, Like, I look at the Cavs' roster. I look at the Warriors' roster. I look at other great teams of the past or even some other good teams this year like the Spurs. I know the Spurs what they used to be. But, like, if you look at this Cavs' team, other than LeBron James, and even he has his moments – is there anybody on the team that you say, I can count on them every single night. I know they're going to be consistent on both ends of the floor. I know they're going to do what they do well every single time. And it's incredibly rare where they completely fail in terms of what their talents and their skill sets are. Everybody on that Cavs roster you know could be in for a game where they totally disappear or play absolutely horrible. Like Kyrie could go like 9 of 35 in a game with eight turnovers. Kevin Love could completely hide out in the corner, you know, Pitch a, pitch a tent and, and start camping, and, and no one pays attention to him whatsoever. Like, he's scared. You you have um, you mentioned Amon Shumper. Yeah, he's a good perimeter defender, but there are times where it looks like he doesn't want to play basketball. J.R. Smith and go out and go 0 for 7 from 3, be completely distracted with some Instagram model or something. Like, they really don't have that team where it's guys that are solely about, do, you know, doing what their job is, where it's all about basketball, where there's no, there's not even a hint of like me, me, me. It's really hard to find. Like even the Warriors, and like I know people want to say what they want to say about Golden State, or there's this weird jealousy now with Steph Curry. But like at all the guys that have sacrificed this year for Durant to be there, really is Steph. Steph Curry took a step back this year in terms of productivity and you know his superstardom to make sure Durant fit in, and that's what makes the Warriors so great, and that's what makes them so rare too. You know, it's interesting about Steph Curry, and uh, we, we've, we've talked about how we quickly try to knock superstars from, from, the, from, from being superstars, right? You know, we, we talk about John Wall and his Game 7 performance, forgetting about what he did in Game 6 against the Celtics and what he did in, in Game 6 against the Atlanta Hawks. James Harden, we have to you know, bring him down a peg after his performance in Game 7 against the San Antonio Spurs. I, I, I have always been rubbed the wrong way when former players come out and talk smack about Steph Curry maybe because he's you know 64 and 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 lanky and doesn't really look the part like a LeBron James does or other guys he doesn't really look like he belongs in the NBA because he's a skinny dude but this guy was a two-time MVP this guy won an NBA finals 
and we're pretending like he's some you know random jabroni and that he's not even that quality of a player from time to time. And I know I'm, I'm exaggerating a bit, but it isn't it funny how last year, Nick, we talked about if you started a franchise tomorrow, who would you pick? Almost everyone was picking Steph Curry. That same question comes up this year. Where's Steph Curry? Maybe around 10th? Yeah, I mean, look, I don't know how many people. I, I, I would probably have still, I'm pretty sure, I mean, I'm sure we talked about this. I probably would have still picked LeBron last year just because the versatility he has. But, look, you're not wrong with what you're saying. I mean, it's true. And, yeah, look, like Steph Curry looks like a guy you played high school basketball with. I mean, that's really what it is. So people don't really understand how to comprehend it. They're like, you look like a kid, but you're doing this. I don't understand. Something's wrong. This is not possible. Like, people don't want to believe things like that that don't seem possible just by the way somebody looks at times. I mean, it's true. And Steph Curry doesn't look like a guy it's going to dominate an NBA game. And I get it. Like when people talk about, I think Scotty Pippen said something the other day where he said, Steph Curry's not a dominant player. Well, how do we define a dominant player? Like, That's not true. Can he take, can he take a physically imposing like Shaq or LeBron James, or is it, there are other ways to dominate a game, not just being like physically imposing, like certain really big players in the past of the NBA have done. He can dominate a game strictly with his jump shot, and that's enough. That's how good he is. Well, Nick, he can take over a game, and we've seen it time after time. He right. can alter the outcome of a game in less than a minute with a, a, a run of his own of five consecutive threes, and the game is over. You completely yeah. take the team out of it. I consider that pretty dominating. Yeah, but a lot of people don't. You're right. But you have a, a broader view, like I do, in terms of what dominance means. Like People think of dominance as, as somebody that's, being, that's physically imposing – they look at the, the the classic NBA player, right? He's big, he's strong, he can do lots of different things. But really, I mean, if you really want to break that down, then, I mean, Shaq really could do one thing, and it was just push people over and dunk on them. I mean, that was what Shaq did, but he was dominant in his way. LeBron James is dominant in multiple ways because he's that good. He's an all-time great. Steph Curry is dominant because of his shooting ability, his ball-handling ability. He can get other players involved. He's not as good of a passer as LeBron James. He's not as good of a playmaker as LeBron James. He's a great ball handler, and he's the greatest shooter we've ever had in the NBA. And then people don't want to accept the fact that somebody that looks like him is able to dominate a game like this. And I honestly, I like it. It's, it makes him more relatable in that way. So, Nick, we obviously are here in D.C. This is a D.C.-based podcast, so let's spin this local. Kevin Durant from here. Didn't give the Wizards a meeting last July in the Hamptons. Didn't get to enjoy some home cooking with Kevin Durant and hanging out at the beach. He goes to Golden State. So as a D.C. native, should people in this town be cheering for Kevin Durant, knowing he's from here, or cheering against Kevin Durant, knowing that he gave the Heisman to the D.C. area? (laughs) I like that you said give him the Heisman. Way to put it. Uh, You know what? Root for him. I mean, he's a local kid that's doing well. We should be rooting for everybody that's from this area to be successful, you know? I mean, I understand that there's that feeling of, like, well, why do you want to come play here? There are people, and look, and I know you and I have certainly had this argument before, and we had this discussion on our show before, and it's your your feelings are hurt if you're the Wizards, and I know a lot of people in the organization were not happy, and rightfully so, that he didn't even give them a meeting but like when you, if he's home, he's gonna have to get he's gonna have to get tickets for people for every single game. He's gonna deal with people knocking on his door, hitting him up. Like he he wants to get away from this, and it's okay that he wanted to get away from his hometown. It's like going to college somewhere else. You don't want to be local. You want to go somewhere else. Let Kevin Durant have his success where he is. Root for him because he's a local guy. Understand it's not a it's not a personal thing. He just chose his own path, and like everybody complains. 
about NBA players when they make moves like this, but how often do athletes in general, pro athletes, actually have control over their destiny, over where they get to live, over where they get to play, over where they get to work? You don't get that much, and he had that opportunity. Do you blame him for taking it? Look how this team plays. It's incredible. He's having fun. He's enjoying basketball. He's playing some of the best basketball of his career. We need to get over the fact that he decided he wanted to go play for the Warriors, didn't want to come to D.C., and who knows? What if later in his career he decides he wants to? What if he finishes up his career in D.C.? He gets a couple of titles. The Warriors are more title-ready than the Wizards. It's true. He didn't want to have to go through LeBron James in the Eastern Conference. Wizards would not have beaten the Cavs if they had Kevin Durant with the rest of the roster being the same. Now, there's more to it than that because you've got to think of the money that would have fit and all that, but they didn't have the depth to beat him. It just wouldn't have happened. And we – like, think about this. Right now, Tim, when we talk about the greatest players of all time in the NBA, you know who the second-leading scorer in NBA history is? It's Carl Malone. And nobody talks about Carl Malone in that sentence ever because he's never won a title. Players are forgotten if they don't win titles, and they understand that now, and they know that even if they win it with a bunch of other stars, which, by the way, if you look in the history of the NBA, every star is won with other stars on his roster however that roster was made up and put together so you need to put yourself in a position where you win titles because that's part of your legacy every player cares about their legacy and he thought this was the best way for it he wanted to go work out there he's got business opportunities out there now in the bay yeah good for him i'm rooting for him i hope i hope it works out i really do if you don't like kevin durant because he joined the golden state warriors and you think that was an easy way out i get that and if that is the way you think that's fine But if you're holding a grudge against Kevin Durant because he, as I said, gave the Heisman to the D.C. area, well, you got to think a little bit outside the box. The the Wizards were never getting him. And and I think that's, to me, even if the Wizards, in my opinion, Nick, and you could agree or disagree, let's say that they had the 2017 season in 2016. They were 49-33. and They were on the step of the Eastern Conference Finals, went to a Game 7. John Wall and Bradley Beal really look like quite a dynamic backcourt. There is health there. They're not just going to be a a banged-up and bruised type of team moving forward where you can never rely on one of their superstars to always be there. I still don't even think he comes here. I don't think he he wanted to. You, You pointed out, look, a lot of guys don't want to come back home. So if you want to cheer against Kevin Durant for his decision to go to Golden State and you think that was a cop-out, that's fine. But if you really are holding a grudge because he didn't come to D.C., he was never coming to D.C. Unfortunately, he didn't want to come back home. That's just that's just the way it was. He didn't want to come back home. That's the way I look at it. If you want to cheer, yeah. cheer against him for being a front-runner and we don't like front-runners, I get that. But if you really are holding a grudge for him not coming to D.C., he was never coming here. Yeah, I mean, maybe he gives him a meeting. I mean, there's a possibility. Yeah, he might give him a meeting. Season last year. Right, which is fair, just to give them sort of the opportunity. But you're right. There there were bigger factors in this. This wasn't just basketball-related, his decision. I mean, this was business-related, too. There's a lot to do in the Bay Area in terms of business ventures for him. I was just reading something on ESPN.com about that, too, where – you know, all the different things were – it was after, actually, and if you haven't read it, I don't know if you have to, but you should definitely read it, the the feature that they had on Durant after his uh, his foot injury when he was in Oklahoma City and sort of how he sort of – he moved on from it just being about basketball and it was about enjoying life too because he couldn't play basketball because of his foot injury, so he went around and just learned how to, like, enjoy life and have hobbies and things like that, and that changed him in a lot of ways, and for him – in this sense, it's do I want to go back home? Do I want to constantly have the pressure of making all my friends and family happy, constantly 
getting them tickets. He didn't want that distraction. I don't I don't blame the guy. I really don't. It was more than just the team and the success of the Wizards versus the Warriors. It was everything, the whole package. And you know what? Maybe he just wanted to live on the West Coast. Maybe he just wanted to live in California most of the time. Not a bad gig. Who wins game two? <sighs> Warriors. Yeah. Warriors look too good. They're taking the first two. But I mean, I had the Warriors in six. I'm still going to stick with it for now. But the Cavs are going to make it harder and harder for me to stick to that prediction with the way they played in game one. Yeah, I had Warriors in five just because I had, as much as I enjoy watching LeBron and he is the best player in the series, there's that motivation factor, which I think is a bit overrated, but man, it's hard to tell me that Kevin Durant was not fired up going into that game. And it's just that Cavaliers defense is just that bad going up against maybe the best offense we've ever seen. So I think the Warriors take game two, and then we'll chat again uh, before game three of the NBA Finals. Hopefully, Nick, a little bit more entertaining. But hell, I still, I still, I still enjoy watching these two teams play, even though it wasn't as entertaining as we hoped it would be. Look, the Warriors at least make dominance look fun, right? Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Well, as Nick hangs up, I scrounged up a good friend of the, I would say the show, but we haven't had him on this show. It's Al Galdi. What's up, Al? Tim, what's going on, man? Not much. I want to talk some baseball with you, so that's why Nick, uh, I think he had some phone issues. When I said baseball, and then he just hung up. So I guess that's the way. He's allergic to that I guess that's the way it rolls. Uh, A couple things that I want to hit on with you. Being that this is a podcast that people could be listening to this four days down the road, we're not going to get into the Oakland A's versus Nationals breakdown. But obviously a couple big things came about. Uh, This week, obviously, Bryce Harper versus Hunter Strickland. But something that you and I have talked about quite a bit is this perception in town that Mike Rizzo is 100% to blame for the bullpen being a disaster. Now, I agree that there is some blame to be had, but John Heyman came out with an article uh, on Thursday basically saying that the Nationals were in on Greg Holland, that Mike Rizzo was going to be creative to figure out a way to get him to come to town, and the learner said, no, we don't want to spend that much money on a closer. This is a real issue, and I feel like this is something that is being overlooked in town that the learners have really hamstrung Mike Rizzo to making moves to make a complete team, and it's it's a bit surprising. I understand, and, and look, you can't say the learners are cheap because they're not. They spend money on Max Scherzer, Steven Strasburg. I think that they'll pony up and try to get, bring back Bryce Harper because those are big-name guys. But as we learned last year with the Indians, as we learned in 2015 with the Royals, bullpens are sexy now. You, you get, if you want to win, you got to have a bullpen. Yeah, you know, the best thing I've ever heard when it comes to Mike Rizzo and the learners is Rizzo's biggest challenge here has not been managing down, it's been managing up. And it's been dealing with an ownership group that's quirky. And like you said, I mean, you can't say that the learners are cheap, but you can say that they're quirky and that they sort of pick their spots with where they spend money. So they'll spend big money on a Scherzer or Strasburg or a Zimmerman, uh, but they won't spend the big money on something like, the bullpen, which was a glaring need and has been an obvious need and really has been an obvious need for multiple years now. I mean, this this goes back to two off-seasons ago where they wouldn't go for a fourth year for Darren O'Day and let, they let the Orioles re-sign him. Now, hindsight being what it is, they might be better off for not having signed O'Day because he's been up and down the last two years, but that's not the point. Rizzo wanted O'Day, couldn't get him because the learners wouldn't guarantee a fourth year. Now, here you go with the Greg Holland situation, and 
signing him this past offseason wasn't going to be a cure-all for your bullpen. You didn't know what to expect from the guy coming off the Tommy John, but he was a guy who was excellent with Kansas City in 13 and 14. He's a guy who you figured, all right, this is a reasonable risk to take. Colorado gave him this $15 million vesting option. Rizzo was on board with it, so you have the endorsement of your general manager who's widely regarded as one of the better ones in the game, and you said no. And, I mean, it's the kind of thing you say, all right, well, all right, maybe you want to do something else. That's the problem with their bullpen approach. They didn't do that something else. You know, Joe Blanton, Eni Romero, those are your two acquisitions of significance from the offseason. That's what you banked on. And as we've seen, the bullpen up until here recently has been a real problem. Now, they have the sizable cushion atop the division. It's not killing them. They're going to have an opportunity down the line here to make some kind of a trade in season, but you don't know what they're going to have to give up. And I just think there's a larger issue of getting away from the specifics of the bullpen. It's just your GM, who, again, didn't just get the job two days ago. Isn't one of these 28-year-olds who just graduated from college. It's like, this guy's been on the job for a while, widely respected. He endorsed doing this. He endorsed doing this, by the way, for a guy who was represented by Scott Boris, yes. who the learners have a very good relationship with. And they said no to him. And then, by the way, not long after that, they spent potentially $21 million on a catcher who I still say they didn't need. Matt Weider. It's been a pleasant surprise, but you didn't need to spend that kind of money. You didn't need to bring him in. And yet they chose to do that. So, again, quirky. It's hard to figure out. The thing you mentioned about Scott Boris and how he represents Greg Holland and John Heyman, for those who don't know, is very well connected with Scott Boris. A lot of the information that John Heyman gets is from the Boris camp. So are you a bit surprised that this news comes out via John Heyman knowing Boris and the relationship that they have with the learners? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I think that, you know, you never know, like, the tone with which, uh, assuming Boris leaked this to, to Heyman, you never know the tone with which Boris did that. So maybe, you know, maybe it wasn't, boy, get a load of these learners. Look what they wouldn't do. And it might have been more along the lines of, yeah, you know, my guy Holland's been great this year. And we had we had a few other teams interested. And, you know, we sort of drops it in that way. So it's hard to ascertain exactly the nature of the revelation. But, uh, you know, you don't have to be uh, Sherlock Holmes to figure out where this is coming from. I think that's pretty clear. And, you know, I, I just look at it and I say, you know, the Holland signing for the Nats was one of those things that a lot of us first guessed. It was, you know, like it's not just sitting here now saying, well, he's, Greg's been great. They should have signed him. It's like, no, back in December and January and February, some of us were talking about this as, yeah, this is something that could really pan out. This is the kind of thing that could really work out. And, you know, when it comes to bullpen acquisitions, there's a philosophy of you should never spend big money. And it's fair to have that, you know. So if you didn't want to spend the big money on a Jansen or a Melanson or a Chapman, that's that's understandable. You know, like I can understand that. But there are all these other lower-cost avenues to go down. And that the Nats didn't do that just to me is still really odd. But I think we're getting a clearer picture of why they didn't do that. It's not because the GM didn't want to. It's because he gets a budget from ownership. He needs permission to surpass it. And unless he gets that permission, they ain't doing it. Yeah, the twenty was it twenty nine million guaranteed with that fifteen million dollar vesting option for Greg Holland somewhere it's, in that ballpark. Yeah, right. And 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 it sounds like a good chunk of money, but when you think about what was being thrown around for for Jansen, Melanson, for Chapman, record breaking deals, that's a pretty good bargain to get a, a closer. And once again, as you've pointed out, and it, it should be noted, this was a risk because he missed all of last year with Tommy John's surgery, but. For the money that they were willing to throw out for Matt Wieters, a, a catcher that, in my opinion and in your opinion, as you've noted on, on your shows multiple times, was a, was a luxury signing. They traded for Derek Norris. 
they didn't really think of catcher as a necessity. And then here comes this signing for $21 million. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. And the other thing, too, with Holland is, again, vesting option, meaning he had to finish 30 games for the option to kick in. By the way, he's probably going to meet that by the All-Star break right. this year. But the, the point is, if he meets the vesting option, then that must mean he's healthy. You know what I mean? So it does sort of take some of the risk out of it. If he's healthy and he's pitching well, then you shouldn't mind giving him the $15 million. If he's a total train wreck, then you get out of the deal, and you really haven't lost that much. The other funny thing, too, with all this is it was not that long ago that the learners okayed spending pretty good money, especially at the time, for a closer in Rafael Soriano. And that was not a guy at the time who it was viewed the Nationals truly needed, and yet they spent the money to get him. So, again, it's kind of random sometimes when Rizzo gets the green light to do something and when he doesn't. What do you think the relationship is like with Mike Rizzo and the learners? Because we keep hearing these these rifts that they have, and then you, you see the overspending uh, from, from Boris clients, and you, and you kind of read the tea leaves and say, you know what, that was probably more of the learners doing than the Rizzo or, or Rizzo move. When his contract comes up, and I'm not exactly sure when it, when it, when it will come up, whether it's in a couple of years or whatnot, there, fe- there has to be a legitimate chance that Mike Rizzo says, I- I'm done with this, you know, let-, let me move on. Because that reputation continues to grow and grow and grow, and, and in all likelihood he's going to lead this franchise to its fourth division title in six years. Yeah, I mean, his salary is not widely known, so it's hard to say whether he's among the better paid general managers or not. We do know that it took the learners quite a while to exercise an option in his contract. Not that long ago. In other words, they kind of walked that up the line, and that's kind of the way the learners have done things. But, you know, it always struck me as a little odd. Like, again, here you have a guy regarded as a top five, top ten GM at worst, and, you know, you're sort of playing games with him contractually. So I'm sure he appreciates the job. I'm sure he likes cashing the checks. But are there other ownership groups that maybe he would enjoy working for more, perhaps? On the flip side of that, though, You know, it's the old saying of the devil you know. And while he may have his things to complain about with the learners, he also knows what he's dealing with. I'm sure there is a a degree of autonomy he does enjoy with this team. And, you know, some people, I, I mean, if he was in, let's just be honest, if he was in a market like a Boston or a New York or a Philadelphia, scrutiny would be a lot higher on Rizzo. And in Washington, D.C., where it's the Redskins number one and then everyone else is battling for that number two spot, things don't have to go perfect for you to keep your job and for Heat to stay off you. And Rizzo's in a, in a comfortable spot. And not to say that there's not any criticism, that is not any scrutiny for him, but you know the Nats playoff failures I, I think would be a bigger deal in other markets. Some of the offseason decision-making would be under greater scrutiny in some of these other markets. I think in D.C., people look at it, Mats are a good franchise, have a good farm system, and so Rizzo escapes some of what you know guys in those other bigger markets have to go through, and maybe that appeals to him more than we realize. Yeah, I do wonder if uh, if we were sitting here in Boston, would be be nitpicking the fact that Jerry Blevins has got like a one five ERA, right. and that was a trade where he gave up Matt Dendecker for for Jerry Blevins, a trade that clearly didn't work. I don't think many people really even remember that Jerry Blevins was a Washington National. No, absolutely <laughs> not. I mean, I, I think. The media has given the Nats a pass on the bullpen thing going back to last offseason. In other words, like everyone now can say, yeah, the bullpen hasn't been that good. But back in December, January, February, you weren't really you weren't reading much about the Nats not doing much with the bullpen. You know, that wasn't a big topic of conversation. They were getting applauded in spring training. Well, they figured it out. Blake Trinan's right. the guy. This is going to be a great bullpen. Right. And I, 
I was I've never been a, a firm believer in Blake Trinan. We saw the the disaster that he was a couple of years ago in the setup role. He was terrific last year, and and hopefully he figures out his his niche as a you know a situational type guy. But yeah, it was interesting. Almost across the board, everyone was applauding this bullpen yeah. breaking camp. Yeah, right. There, there's a lot of that that goes on. So maybe Mike likes that, and so maybe that would persuade him to stay here longer. But at some point, you would think that that this managing ups dynamic gets a little tiresome, and he would get another job in a heartbeat, I believe. And so maybe you know he, he gets to a situation, especially if Harper leaves, where he says, "All right, time to move on." You know, we have seen over the last few years in Major League Baseball. A lot of general manager change. A lot of teams have changed GMs the last few years. So, you know, it's not like unheard of for a big-name GM or a successful GM to move on. You know, Dave Dombrowski went to Boston, that kind of thing. We've seen that happen here. The Harper-Strickland fiasco that went down on Monday, I'll leave it pretty open-ended. Whether it was the suspension lengths or just the situation in itself or the... Uh, just the perception of Bryce Harper. What bothered you the most about Monday afternoon? Uh, the suspension of Strickland. I just think it's a joke that he got six games. You know, I, I think that's laughable. I think that MLB, if it really wanted to get rid of fighting, could. The same way the NBA largely has gotten rid of fighting. Uh, these suspensions do nothing. They don't dissuade pitchers from throwing at batters. And if you want to keep fighting in your game, that's fine. I mean, I don't, I don't really have that much of a problem with it. It is entertaining, okay, if we're just being honest about it. It does get a lot of attention for baseball during a time of year in which baseball doesn't usually get that much attention. But don't suspend Bryce for four games and then knock it down to three and suspend Strickland for six and tell me that's anything close to equal when 100% of this was on Strickland. That's my major problem with it. This is all on the pitcher. This is not on Bryce to any degree. And yet Bryce is going to end up missing three games. And Strickland, I mean, he's a reliever, so the most out of six games he would pitch is, what, three, maybe four if you want to be super aggressive. So why why is his punishment anywhere close to being that of Bryce, of Bryce when it's Strickland, again, who's 100% responsible for this? So that's what bothered me more than anything. Yeah, and Ryan Zimmerman made an int- a good point, and, and I feel like we overlooked this, is it, Ryan Zimmerman said, look, if I strike out twice to a pitcher and he gives a, a fist pump, I can't go out there and just start beating him up. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's just so bizarre how the pitcher holds so much power in all of these while the hitter, he hits a couple home runs. Was he emphatic about it? Yeah. It was also the playoffs and it tied a game up in an elimination game yeah. and you stared him down in game one. And if this was such a, a big issue, it bothered the Giants so much Look, Jose Bautista, whether you liked it or not, he was plunked the first time he faced the Rangers. He knew that was coming. It didn't matter who was on the hill. So if the Giants were so fired up about this, they would have hit him in 2015. Yeah, right, and they weren't. And this was so obviously a Strickland decision, you know, given how Posey acted, given some of the postgame comments of Bruce Bochy. So Strickland was really shamed. I mean, Strickland was embarrassed in a lot in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah. They, they really made him look bad. So, and that way you sort of got some punishment on the guy. But I just, missed time can cost you games. Now, again, Nats have the big cushion. They're facing some bad teams out west, so it's not that big of a deal. But in what world is it fair that Bryce is going to miss three games, 27 innings, and Strickland is going to miss potentially, what, three true games, three innings? Like, think about that for a moment. That, to me, is an outrage. Like, if I'm Rizzo, if I'm Dusty Baker, if I'm the learners, I'm pretty furious about that. Do you think, and uh, this is kind of, the, it's been known that, that there's a, 
there's resentment when it comes to Bryce Harper, whether it's the way he acts. We we know players don't like it. We, you know, he was on the cover of Sports Illustrated in high school. I, I find it laughable that there's so much resentment and, you know, disgust. Oh, the young punk and all this. Guy's just playing the game hard. But do you think the way that he responded, where it was – I'm gonna I'm gonna go after you. I don't care how big you are, Hunter Strickland. Do you think there was some respect gained for Bryce Harper around the league? From maybe this? A, maybe a little bit, but uh, you know I don't think the helmet toss did him any favors. <laughs> that was just really that bad. bad. And those, that was bad. Th- th- those pun- punches aren't gonna make Conor McGregor jealous either. <laughs> he landed the second one. I thought yeah. that was all right. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, you know, I've never had a. I've never had an easy time figuring out all the animosity towards Harper. I've always think that's been way overblown and way unfair. I do think, though, specific to the Nats, you know, they have had a soft reputation. Right or wrong, that's been a rep. I mean, the, the 2014, comments, Tim Hudson the Tim called Hudson him comments. out. Right, exactly. And he's not the only guy in baseball who's thought those things. And, again, it's, it's impossible for me to sit here and say whether it's true or not. I'm not in these guys' minds. But them, you know, Harper walking the first and sort of taking that, I think would have added to that rep. I agree. And I also think this, you know, them not retaliating, I have to say, I don't love that. I, I understand what the mentality is of just beat them on the field. We don't have to throw at one of them. This is a purely Strickland thing, not a Giants versus Nats thing. So I do get that. But I don't know, man. You know, I think about Boston. I think about the Yankees. I think about San Francisco, the Dodgers. You know, if those teams dealt with something like this, you don't think they'd be throwing at a Giant the next day or the day after that or the next time the two teams play. And maybe at some point that happens, but... This is your, if not best player, one of your best players. He is the face of your team at this point in many ways. He was intentionally thrown at without question. As archaic as baseball's hit-by-pitch wars are, there's a part of me that says somebody had to do something. Again, you may not, you know, don't hate the player, hate the game. Like, you may not like the way that it works, but this is the way it works. And for the Nats not to retaliate... I don't know. I can't say I'm 100% on board with that. Do you that. think that's why Buster Posey hesitated as long as he did? I know there's he's you know recently had a concussion, yeah. but you know and then there's I think it was Ken Rosenthal who said, "Well, maybe Hunter Strickland said, "You stay there and I want to take on Bryce." I I wonder Buster Posey by far and away is the best offensive player that the Giants have. They have been poor offensively this year. Maybe he didn't want to get a ball to the ribs. It's possible. Um, I I just think though he was looking at it like, oh, this guy, look what he started, and he didn't want to deal with it. You know, that's that's. I mean, that's my interpretation. I, mean, I agree. Knows? I mean, who it, knows? You it know, it was so bizarre. Yeah, but I I think I think there are a lot of other teams that would have plunked Posey the next game or the game after that. I was a little surprised Scherzer, who's kind of the captain of the ship here, and he's he's the alpha, didn't do that. Now again, Max was outstanding in that start at San Francisco, so I'm I don't want to sit here and slam the guy, but. I just, I, you know, you think about these things, and down the line, you know, the Nats look soft in another predicament. I could see people bringing this up and saying, well, look, they didn't even retaliate, and their best player got hit on purpose for everyone to see on national TV. So, Al, appreciate it, man. All right, man. And make sure to tune in to Al Galdi's two shows. If you like baseball chatter, every Saturday morning, 9 to 10 a.m., Galdi talks Nationals and Orioles with Chin Music on ESPN 980. And then every weekday morning, if you're up bright and early, the Morning Blitz from 5 to 7 a.m. So make sure to follow him on Twitter, at Al Galdi. Follow Nick Ashew on Twitter, at Nick Ashew. I'm at one Tim Murray. Until next week, see you, folks.